Hey, welcome back to another episode of Dream Big, Play Bigger. Listen, guys, I'm really excited for you to hear this interview. Patrick Sweeney is a leader in understanding our brain and how fear impacts our life, what it keeps us from accomplishing, how it keeps us kind of stuck in our own little bubble, and uh, really prevents us from realizing our true potential. Patrick knows so much about this because he lived it. When he was a little boy, he witnessed a horrific plane crash on the news, uh, watched it live, and um, shortly after, his family was to take a trip, and when they were in the airport, he saw the same tail number on another airplane outside, and his fight or flight kicked in on overdrive to the point where the airport removed him and his family from the airport. Then he spent the rest of his life up until about 35 years old being afraid of everything. So something happened, shift in his life around his 30s, and he committed his life to understanding the impact of fear and shares it with us here. Also, Patrick is a recent author. He just wrote the book, Fear is Fuel, comes out this month. So please give a chance to take a, uh, please give yourself a chance to listen to this. Uh, I do want to acknowledge that the we, this was recorded live, and uh, it was recorded live at the Spartan World Championships in Tahoe in 2019. It is presented by our sponsor, ATP Science. We're grateful for them for putting on the Spartan Race Media Fest. Uh, so it is live. You'll hear some conversations happening in the background with other podcasters, but the audio is clear. You'll be able to hear every word that Patrick and I have to say with each other. And I promise you, you're not going to want to miss this one. Thank you for listening to Dream Big, Play Bigger. And I look forward to hearing your feedback. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Dream Big, Play Bigger podcast. I'm your host, AJ Richards. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing Patrick Sweeney, the fear guru. Hey, AJ. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for being here. So I know you're writing a book. It's focused on fear and how to how to navigate that and get through it. Will you share a little bit about you and your background and what kind of took you down that path? Yeah, absolutely. I um, I was born from uh, first generation Irish immigrants in a, a really blue collar area of Boston and uh, grew up in you know kind of that that typical lifestyle. Uh, my dad was working three jobs and my mom was a bank teller on the weekends. I didn't uh, you know I. I had bully problems like most people did, you know, and my grandfather thought the way to toughen us up would be to take his belt off and, you know, and, and whip us over the over the bed. So it was, a, it was a pretty rough upbringing. But one thing, you know, and I talk about this in the book, uh, Fear is Fuel, is uh, I, had a, I had a traumatic event when I was about seven years old. I saw a plane crash on the evening news and uh, we had this little black and white, you know, RCA TV and uh, I saw this newscaster screaming and, and, and yelling and at Logan Airport where a Delta DC-9 had crashed. And that planted this seed of terror inside me that lasted uh, literally for, for 30 years. And, um, and, and I grew up as probably the, the biggest coward, the wimpiest kid you could possibly imagine. And then constantly trying to deal with it by, by covering it up, by, by putting armor on. And, and first I thought I'd do it with athletics and uh, 
uh, and I, I wanted to get good at stuff and I became a, a good skier and then uh, in college discovered rowing, won a national championship and got invited to the Olympic Training Center, spent six years training for the Olympics, uh, finished second in the Olympic trials in the single skull, one man rowing and uh, one of the few Americans to race the World Cup. I raced the World Cup three years in a row and, um, and, and you know that actually finding out that I was going to be able to race in the World Cup should have been one of the happiest days of my life. But instead it wasn't because of fear. I was, I was terrified that I had to get on a plane and fly to, and fly to Europe, right? And, and it just it, it petrified me. I'd have, you know, seven drinks just to get dragged down the plane. And was so, this your first flight over? Yeah, oh yeah. Like yeah, okay. and it was, I think it was maybe my second flight in my life. Because uh, I just made up every excuse you could imagine to, to not do exchange programs or spring breaks and anything like that. And so I kept being filled with all this shame, right, uh, how cowardice I was. But I had, to, I had to act, you know, like the tough guy. I had to keep putting my, myself out there and, uh, and show people, oh, no, you know, and, and create this persona, really. And then after the Olympics, I thought I could do it with money, right, and maybe that would get me courage. So I, uh, I set a goal of 40 by 40. I was going to make a net worth of $40 million by the time I was 40 years old. And uh, I started three technology companies, raised 50 million bucks, uh, sold one, had started the other one. And I always had this, this low-level cortisol, which is a stress hormone, was going through my body constantly. And the way I was dealing with it at the time was drinking. So I'd drink seven or eight beers a night. You know, I was going to networking events at three, four glasses of wine, you know, five or six beers afterwards with the guys I liked at a bar. And I'd go home at midnight, one o'clock for four hours of teeth grinding sleep. I'd, I'd feel guilty about how I treated my body. That's the whole Irish Catholic thing. <laughs> and, uh, and I'd wake up and hit, hit the gym. And then one morning, you know, I go into the gym and my arms hurt me, same routine. I, I thought, wow, I must have pulled a muscle or a tendon or something in the arm. I'll, I'll do cardio and jumped on the cardio and uh, same, same routine again, you know, work uh, 13 hours and, and then go out. And then the second day I could barely move my arm and I thought I should probably go to the doctor. But I didn't. You know yeah, why? Because right. I was too afraid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was afraid of what he was going to tell me. Third day, I couldn't do a damn thing about it. I mean, my arm was looked like it was on fire. It was bright red like a, like a stove, you know, like a wood stove. And I went to the doctor, and he said, listen, it looks like a staph infection, which is pretty common with guys who go to the gym. You know, not a big yeah, deal. Right. We'll give you some uh, antibiotics, take a blood test, and the nurse will call you back this afternoon and let you know what the results are. And so... The nurse didn't call me back that afternoon. The doctor did. And no, that was one phone call that completely changed my life. Uh, he said, we don't know what it is. You've got no immune system. We're not fit to deal with it here and rest in hospital. We're going to send you to the best hospital in the world, Johns Hopkins. 24 hours later, I'm at Hopkins, you know, with more wires and tubes stuck in me than the space shuttle. And uh, my wife's at the end of the bed. And our one-year-old daughter is at home with her grandparents. And by the way, my wife is six months pregnant. Oh my goodness. And she's sitting at the end of the bed. And Dr. McDevitt walks in and he, you know, he sits down and he said, listen, um, we've got the best doctors and, and technology and everything else here, but are your affairs in order? <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, man, that, that's some heavy, heavy shit. 35. Yeah, so it was, it was 15 years ago. And... and um, 
uh, you know, and he said that, so, you know, that was when I had to come face to face with my own death. And at that point, all I could feel was regret and all I could feel was shame and all I could feel is that I had all these opportunities that I just wasted because every decision I made was driven by fear. Was that clear to you then? What, at that moment you knew it was fear? It's clear to me now, AJ. I'm getting like, you know, I, I mean, I can feel it now. Like, like, you know, thinking, why did I do everything? Everything was thinking about what I wanted in the future, what other people, you know, my armor was, I, I had, I was driving $150,000 cars. I had $10,000 suits and $20,000 watches. And, I, I, you know, I was building up this cocoon and trying to create this, uh, this image. And, and, you know, I was ignoring my, my wife. I was, you know, wasn't in touch with my friends. It was it was all just trying to to create some self esteem, you know, and and trying different ways to do it. And I had such great, you know, I mean, I should have won a gold medal in the Olympics. I should have, you know, I should have built this amazing company. But I, it, you know, these fear based decisions drove me into into an area that was just regret. And, and and so, you know, that's, that's the bad part. So there's the, there's the bad part of the background. And then everything changed. Yeah, totally. We're going to go into that. But I'm curious. So at seven, you see the plane. How did, that, how did you make that mean something about you? So I'll tell you from a neuroscience perspective exactly what happened. So for the book, um, Fear is Fuel, I interviewed 36 of the world's top neuroscience scientists over the past five years. And I learned some stuff that's absolutely incredible. And, and the things I learned, AJ, are, are, were so powerful and so profound that I thought, other people can find courage by using this knowledge of neuroscience that, yeah. that hasn't even been released or if it's been released, it's in language that no one can understand. Yeah. So, yeah. so the point of the book is to take all this scientific knowledge and help people understand. So the first thing, you know, to answer that question, you have to understand how memories are formed. Okay. So when anything happens, we form two memories. One is called a semantic memory, and those are just the facts. So for me, Delta DC-9, Logan Airport, 100 people on board died. So that's it, just, just the facts. We can never change that semantic memory. The second thing that's formed at the same time is an emotional memory. And for me, it was death and dismemberment. I might have been on the plane. Some kids just lost their parents. That could have been my parents. That emotional memory was paired with that semantic memory. Now, if, if you don't do anything when you recall that emotional memory the next time, then, then that same, uh, sorry, when you recall that semantic memory, you don't, if, when you recall that event, if you don't do something differently, the, the same emotion is going to repeat itself. And so that's what happened to me. We were actually supposed to take our first family trip about three weeks after that plane crash. And um, we'd never flown anywhere. We didn't even have luggage. We borrowed luggage from our neighbors. <laughs> and, you know, and we, we dragged it into this smoky terminal at Logan Airport. And we were all excited because my aunt and uncle lived in Atlanta, Georgia. And they had a litter of puppies. And one of them was for us. And so, we, you know, we're all excited about that. And when I walked into that airport, that terminal, I looked across the terminal and I saw the logo of a Delta DC-9 on the tail of a plane. My amygdala, that little survival gland in the base of your brain, triggered, recalled the memory of all those people dying of the flames on the airplane and everything else, and I flipped out. Right? I had seven. a, I'm seven. I have a fight, flight, or freeze response. I'm screaming at my mom. I don't want to die. Get me out of here. I'm, I'm tearing at her, her skin like a cat running up a tree. 
And I threw yeah. such a fit, we got kicked out of Logan Airport. Which did which did two things, yeah. AJ, to answer your question. Number one, it reinforced that memory. It yep. wired those collected neurons evidence. together, collected evidence, and, and it made that emotional memory harder wired to that semantic memory. So now planes meant death, meant fear, meant threat. The second thing it did was it ensured that I get shit for the next 40 years from my parents yeah, <laughs> for making right. them drive 14 hours to Atlanta, to Georgia. Yeah, I, uh, you know, we, t- to we, we, took our, uh, we took our kids to uh, Italy this summer um, for vacation, and I was telling my dad about it, and I, I, said, I said, Pops, you know, we're heading to Italy, or whatever, and he's like, geez, that's a mighty long drive, Patty. Oh. <laughs> so, so he's not letting that happen. No, oh, no. no. Okay, so... Now you're interviewing. Now this is it, it's become clear. You're in the hospital. It's become clear. You now there's some uh, some knowledge behind. There's like a, a, a blind spot's been exposed because of the condition you're in. Yeah. Well. So what 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 ended up happening to me is I I had no idea that there was a blind spot. I just had regret. So I had these okay. I had these emotions that you know my life's cut too short not because of age or not because you know I've got a family. My life's cut too short because I just made all these horrible decisions for all for the wrong reason. And so, you know, we had these doctors working on me and uh, you know, I have a friend who's a who's a priest and he's he starts working and then I thought, well, we used all these uh, visualization techniques and all these mental training techniques at the Olympic Training Center, and it got me really fast. It made me one of the fastest guys in the world. Yeah. And, uh, and I said, why can't I use those to heal myself? Right. So I started, every waking moment at Hopkins, I started visualizing these warrior cells coming out of my sternum and going out and blasting the leukemia cells. Yeah. And, and so, so that's you know, what it was. So, so that's how, that's, you know. But it was leukemia. It was leukemia, sorry, okay. yeah, yeah. It was a really rare form of leukemia. Wow. Okay. And, um, uh, and, and so, you know, uh, I, I ended up obviously beating it and getting out of Hopkins. And, you know, when I went into Hopkins, I thought my life was over. But in, in reality, it had just begun. I mean, part of me died at Hopkins. And that part was all that armor, all that, all that image, all that, all that caring about, um, you know, what others thought about me. And, and, and instead, what came out was was the real authentic me because I, I stepped out of the hospital and I was so grateful right like I saw this leaf in a puddle and I tell this when I do my keynote speeches every month it's that I look down and it's in a crummy area uh, Johns Hopkins is in a crummy area of Baltimore and it was rainy gray November day and I saw this beautiful orange leaf with little red around the edges sitting in a in a puddle and I thought wow that's really beautiful and I'm so lucky to be seeing that you know and I just had this amazing gratitude just to be alive right and so I decided when I got out, uh, and there's some great neuroscience behind this too, I'll, I'll share with your listeners. I decided when I got out, I was going to flip the switch to courage, and I was going to take flying lessons. Because my daughter deserved a dad who could get on a plane and take her to Disney World, or take her to, to Paris, or, or do anything like that. And so I, you know, I went to Leesburg, so I was about uh, two months in my house where I couldn't have anyone, I couldn't, you know, no one could go out, I was kind of like boy in the bubble, because my immune system was building back up, and so I couldn't be exposed to anything. But then after that, I went to Leesburg Airport in, in Virginia, and I decided, you know, I was going to pr- get my private pilot's license, get over this fear. And like that first lesson, I'm not kidding, I, I peed four times before I went out. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I remember everything, like all the details. And I was so my my 
my survival response was so kicked on. You know, I was I was terrified. The second one, not much different. In fact, that one I might have pooped myself a little bit, just just a little bit, not a lot. <laughs> so, and so, uh, but the amazing thing, AJ, is after the third or fourth flight, I fell in love with flying. Okay. I, 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 I really found the, the freedom and the, the challenge. So I got my private pilot's license. I went and got my instrument rating. I got my commercial rating, even though I'm never going to be a commercial yeah. pilot. Yeah. And today, the, the kid who was terrified his whole life, now I, I compete in competitive acrobatics. So I fly upside down, pulling five oh Gs, alone in the plane, <laughs> which, which, you know, just the thought of that would have yeah. terrified me oh. uh, 15 years ago. Yeah, can you imagine being that? It, no, oh no. And, and I mean, I would have been in the corner in the fetal position, yeah. right? Yeah, but like, now, talk to me about that. <laughs> and the, so the amazing thing, and this is what started my journey, and this is what I hope your listeners yeah. really benefit from, is I thought to myself, this is, this is a bigger sense of joy and fulfillment than, than the Olympics, than, than uh, starting companies. And, and it was locked away from me for 35 years because of fear. Because the fear-based decisions I made, I didn't even, I didn't discover this. And so I wondered two things. One, one like your listeners out there, what's locked away from them from yep. fear? Right. And, and learning that, that your dreams are on the other side of fear you know, we're here at the Spartan World Championships, and I was telling someone yesterday, we see these obstacles, right? And if you think of fear as one of those giant walls, right, or one of those impossible obstacles, a lot of people just turn around because they're, they're afraid of fear. You know, they're not afraid of actually getting on the wall. It's, it's like the idea of getting on the wall. Yeah, okay. I but like that. once you get on that, once you tackle that wall and you get on the other side, that's where your dreams are. Yes. And so what I wondered, my whole life changed after that, right? Once I chose courage... It had this halo effect. I was working a lot less, but my business was doing much better. I was spending way more time with my wife, you know, having breakfast, coming home and having dinner with our kids. And, and you know, uh, after our second one was born, being more, you know, involved and attentive and stuff like that. And, you know, back in touch with my friends and, and doing fun stuff and adventure racing and that sort of thing. And, uh, and I wondered, you know, what the... What the uh, mechanism was behind it uh, because I had I read something and, and my turning point was when I read this by Sir Edmund Hillary he said I'm sure fear if you cannot be rendered useless by it can be used to extend beyond what you thought was your capability so here's one of the bravest guys to ever walk the face of the earth saying fear doesn't have to kill you like it was killing me. You can use it as fuel and so that, that idea spurred me to then actually ended up doing a charity bike ride, a uh, 100-mile bike ride in Boston, and rode with a neuroscientist from Tufts University. We just ended up, after about 30 miles, fitting into the same pace. And I said, listen, i got a question for you. I said, how could I go from being one of the wimpiest kids in the world to now courage is one of my superpowers? I said, I'm, I'm, I'm now trying to push myself to find out how much I can do and, yeah. and where I can go. I just rode a bicycle across Alaska in January at minus 35 degrees. I'm going to Everest <laughs> Base Camp by mountain bike. I'm you know, doing all this crazy stuff. And he said, come into my office. So a couple days later, I went into his office, and, and he showed me a bunch of his research. And, and I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And he said, oh, you should go see Dr. Scott Orr at Harvard because his research is on the uh, effects of trauma. And so I went and saw Scott Orr, and you know, he told me some amazing things. And he said, oh, you should go see uh, Anna Byler at MIT because her research on valence is absolutely incredible. So I went and saw her. And then I realized all this information about neuroscience 
people can use. Yeah. We, we, they, nobody understands it, and it's not out in the general public. And I said, there's a book in here. I've got, I've got to share this with people because we as a, as a country have just been gripped by fear since 9-11. And, and so that's, that was the genesis of the book. And I, I've traveled from Stanford to Geneva to, to uh, you know, Texas to NYU to all over the world interviewing these neuroscientists. And, and the stuff's fascinating. That's amazing. Um, I, I want to find out the, like the, the direct actions that um, people can take with that. But first of all, will you share, we talked earlier about these, this research on fear. You know, uh, the Oklahoma experience happened in the percentages. Will you share what you were sharing with me earlier about that? Sure. So um, there's, there's a research center that, that collects data on how safe people feel you know, in their homes and in, in, in general. And they've been doing it for uh, something like 50 years. And in general, the U.S. has hovered around 80% people saying, yeah, I feel safe at home, I'm, you know, I don't have anxiety, I'm not threatened, blah, blah, blah. It's not personal stuff, it's, it's sort of how you feel about your environment. And it's always hovered around 20% of the people who don't feel safe. And after the Oklahoma City bombings, it went up to 40% or 42%. Then two months later, it went back down. After uh, the D.C. shootings, it, it went up to 38 39%. Four or five months later, it's back down to 20%. After 9-11, it shot up to 45%, and it's never gotten below 35 or 30 or 35% after that. We've stayed in a state of fear, and the, the, the sad part is, and the tragedy, is that politicians and marketers are using that against us as a tool, right? They're, they're praying to this sense of fear, which is just wedging our country apart. You know, it's, it's really creating a divisive terrible environment because people are so afraid and right. and it was gandhi who said hate isn't the enemy and all these crimes that that you're seeing that are called hate crimes they're they're fear-based so gandhi said hate isn't the enemy it's fear mm-hmm. and people are doing all this awful stuff because of fear yeah, yeah. Fear, fear fear of the unknown like other people yeah. i don't know that different tribes different different i mean that's that's the root of, of almost all fears is what goes into your database and what's considered your tribe and then the threat of potentially something else we've yeah. we've got this this gland at the base of our brain called the amygdala yep. and it's shaped like an almond and uh, it handles the three F's, fight, flight, or freeze. And, and when that triggers, it takes over our decision-making. And, and that thing is running a two-million-year-old piece of software, right? Yeah. So no it's, it's insane, right? No upgrades <laughs> in two million years. Like, can you imagine your desktop being like that? <laughs> and so, you know, from, from my perspective, uh, so many people let that amygdala run their life. And... and because you can distill every decision you've ever made down into one of two things. You either make a decision based on fear or you make a decision based on opportunity. Okay. When you make a decision based on fear, it almost always leads to regret, to shame, or to failure. When you make a decision based on opportunity, it always leads to, to success, to fulfillment, to growth, to happiness. And you can look, you can, you can you know, go back in your life and catalog because we've all made one decision that changed our life. Who to marry, where to go to uh, university, what town to live in, what job to take. And then if you made it out of, geez, I might not get another job offer, then you're probably regretting that. If you made it, wow, this is my dream job, I've worked so hard on it, then you love it, right? So, So every decision you can distill down to fear or opportunity. And, mm-hmm. and that's what I want people to realize. But in order to do that, you asked how people will, uh, will know. In order to do that, you have to understand when 
those moments come up that you're choosing before between fear and opportunity. So how do you identify that? So most people don't know, and that's that's right. the issue. So you scare yourself every day. So, so that's what intentionally, the, intentionally okay. scare yourself every day. And because people, people who say you have to get over your fears, you have to, you know, overcome them, you have to over- avoid them. It's complete bullshit. Yeah. You have to find more fear yes. because if we find fear and I don't mean you have to jump out of a plane, right. but you can. You yep. Yeah. And, and so if you find more fear, what happens to your body? The amygdala triggers okay. because it thinks there's a remote chance of a threat. And when that triggers, you're going to release this fear cocktail. It's adrenaline, it's DHEA, it's cortisol, it's all these enzymes and hormones coursing through your body to give you superhuman power. Mm -hmm. Now, when most people feel that, they might feel a beating heart, like a a thumping heart. They might feel butterflies in their stomach. They might start, their leg might start shaking. Everyone has their own, what I call fear tells. A a tell in poker. Are you a poker player? Yeah, I'm terrible. <laughs> but because your tells are all over? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to play with you. Yeah. <laughs> so the fear tells are exactly the same as your poker tells. When that amygdala kicks off, our body has subconscious reactions that are always the same. Okay. So if you scare yourself today, and let's, let's, assume, um, let's assume you don't like to public speak. Yeah. If, you, if you go to work today and at lunch, you go to lunch with three or four of your friends, and you stand up at lunchtime and you say, I want to make a toast. Right? That might terrify you, just, yeah. just doing something that simple. Yep. But it's easy, and you're definitely not in any danger. Right. Your amygdala, because it's got that crazy piece of software on yeah. it, thinks, okay, I might get rejected from this yes. tribe for acting like an idiot. Right? <laughs> yeah, totally. And so, so you get up and do it, and when you do it, you'll feel all those feelings. You'll uh-huh. feel a beating heart. You'll feel the shortness of breath. I mean, for me, I get bats in my stomach. Okay. I mean, not, not, bat- not butterflies, like right. big old vampire bats, yeah, like pounding it. around in yeah, there. I feel those and and my, my jaw gets tight, and those are sort of my two tells. Okay. And so what happens when you start to find your tells, you start to look for them, is two things. One, you, you get okay with feeling them mm-hmm. because you think, okay, this is just that, that little almond-shaped gland mm-hmm. trying to take over my decision-making. Yeah. And then the second thing that happens is you, you start to learn from what happens to your body so that when you aren't thinking about it, when you get an email from your boss or when your wife calls, your husband calls, and, and then all of a sudden you start to feel that jaw tightening, mm-hmm. you're saying, hey, wait a minute, there's something going on here. That's one of my tells. So my amygdala, even though I didn't know it, yeah. my amygdala is trying to take over. And that tells you, I got an opportunity for something good to happen. I can grow from this. I can grow from this, or I get an opportunity to screw this up right. and do something I might regret. Right. So, so that self-awareness is the first step in the book, is, is, is finding your tells. And, and that's critical. That's yeah. a, a critical first step. Just, just doing that, if people can just start to, to figure out that and then realize that you know, when some seven-year-old grandmother flips them off in the middle of traffic, they don't have to flip them off back. Right. You know, they, can, they can laugh at it and say, you know, I've, I feel my stomach getting you know, knotted up, and I know that's, I'm gonna, I want to react to that, and that's just my fear. You know? um, so that's, that's very interesting. So the, I work with a lot of veterans to help them recover when they get back and so forth, and yeah. talk a lot about the hormones that are released by the body, right? And so what I found that worked for me uh, fear maybe getting back into society, putting myself out there because I'm alone. Yeah. I had a tribe. They knew how we operated. It was lockstep. Yeah, yeah. You know, we were really in sync. Yeah. And so the, the research that I've done reading certain books and just watching, I, a battle buddy of mine killed himself in 2012. Yeah, and... Yeah, and suicide is, I mean, it's terrible. Yeah. The, the PTSD. Yeah, and this was the guy that we wanted to be. Yeah. And, and so when I got the call, I'm like, what? How, 
how, how could it be him, you know? And uh, he was on opiates from a leg injury um, and got into an argument with his wife and, and just things went downhill from there. And one of the things he said he would never do would be go to a psych ward. So he left himself no options. He yeah. made that choice. But what I've noticed since, so since 2012, I'm looking like, okay, why is this suicide rate so incredibly high? And I started looking at the other conflicts in history as far back as just World War II. My grandpa was a World War II sniper and had some incredible stories. But when he came home, he functioned. Matter, he, matter of fact, he was one of the first guys to walk into Dachau before we even knew prison camps were there. And that was his experience. And yet... He was a functioning veteran. I mean, he wasn't all rainbows and unicorns, but he was functioning. And what I came across was it's the hormone release, right? When we're in combat, our, our hormones are on full flow. They just don't stop because at any moment, a mortar is going to fall. So you're just in this heightened state of awareness, fear constantly. It's just always going. And so then I'm like trying to recreate that at home. Because if that's the case, maybe that's what's missing. And so I started CrossFitting. The workout was intense. I got those bats in the stomach, seeing the workout, like, oh my gosh, this is not going to be easy. And then other people around me experiencing the same thing. And then we get into the workout. Now we've got all of these hormones on full flow because we're in the middle of this really intense workout. Now all that's missing is that connection piece. Grandma next to me in class says, come on, AJ, you got this gives me a dose of serotonin, all of a sudden I belong in this society again. It's unbelievable. So it's just interesting that a lot of the research you found comes from the amygdala and all of these hormones released. And it, it seems to me like understanding that and how to balance those hormones or under, being aware of them. Let, let, me give you, let me give you the first step to that too because this is one of the things that, that you know, came out in the research pretty, pretty clearly and most parents have no idea. So for generations, for... for uh, thousands and thousands of years, we trained boys for combat. Right? We, there was always there was always a preparation for combat. There was always a coming of age. That was your purpose. And and even even as things got safer, you know, 18th and 19th century, there's still the coming of age experiences. There's still the combat. There's still the roughhousing around with with people, all when the stakes are very low. And so what? What males particularly, and, and it's it, to a lesser extent with females, but males particularly learned the difference between assertiveness and aggression, right? And, and they became able, there's, there's two centers in your brain. Everyone's heard about the amygdala. Yep. Um, most people haven't heard about something called the SGACC. That's your courage center. So if the amygdala and the limbic system is the fear center, the SGACC is, is the courage center and the happiness and fulfillment center. And most people have never heard of it, but you can flip a switch to turn that on. So you can literally choose courage instead of, instead of letting fear take, that, um, to take control. And so the, one of the biggest problems in our society isn't just this horrible obesity about parents who can't tell their kids they can't have ice cream every night or a 24-ounce Coca-Cola before they go to dinner. Um, you know, the, the obesity is just one issue of, of horrible parenting. The second is trying to protect our kids from everything. You know, the, is, is not giving them the lesson that they are accountable for their own life and they're accountable for their own success. And they've got to learn the difference between um, between being a victim and being uh, an author of their own life. They've got to learn the difference between aggression and assertiveness. And so you, you, hit the, you hit the three points spot on 
after the fact, but one of the reasons that suicide rates are so high in veterans now is most kids, like, of, of military age, most younger, you know, millennials now who are in our military didn't have the coming of age. They didn't have parents who were pushing them out of their comfort zone. They weren't able to learn when the stakes are low. And that's why even in, in universities now, the suicide rate has gone up so high for, for kids. And it's three times for three times for boys what it is for, for girls. And so a lot of this comes down to parenting. I talked to a uh a gentleman that is a world-class stick fighter in martial arts and he was telling me the same concept about rite of passage right throughout history every culture on the planet had some sort of rite of passage you know how you have the walkabout in australia you've got you know in, in bungee diving yeah. Scene, uh, yeah. In yeah 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 all over the world cultures had a way for boys to go from boy to man and the father's job was to prepare them. And, and girls to go from girls to, to women as well. Yeah. So, yeah. And in the way he was explaining it, that's, that's almost biological because they hit a certain age and they're now women, right? Boys don't really have that. Not, not something so like, clear, like, okay, well, now you're a man. And so a lot of it is that courage and that. And, that, and so the, the father's job was to train it. Then it was the trusted members of society to administer it. Right, and so we look in our culture, and it was either uh, a, uh, some sort of a mission or military service. There, in, in in our culture, there's no other way. Or back in the day, my family are all ranchers, you know, and they still do that. So they settled Arizona in uh, 1916 when they they made the last offer to have homesteading, and they went in the middle of nowhere. And the stories are crazy, but I'm you know we we just had the centennial in 2016. And we went from homestead to homestead, and the eldest living member of that particular branch of our family would talk about the stories. And in one, one of the stories was a 9- and 10-year-old were sent on horseback for three days to go gather cows. 9 and 10. I look at my 8- and 10-year-old, and I'm like, what? You, you know, it's, uh, and, and it's so crazy how bad our society is at, at judging people who, in my mind, are doing the right thing. Right. So I've been in the news for, for taking my kids up mountains, right, and, and climbing mountains with them, even though they've done some amazing, my son's done over 24,000-meter peaks. And we were climbing Mount Blanc, and we got caught in a little bit of avalanche. It made national press. It, it made national press the same time Joe DeSena, who's the CEO of Spartan here, a good friend of mine, who he took his kids swimming in an icy lake, and they called the cops, and then the, the newspaper ended up showing up. And, and what's even more messed up is people, people think that just because something's scary is that it's dangerous. So a month ago, so when I was, uh, five years ago, I took my wife and, and daughter down to Costa Rica. I did a, a mountain bike race across the country called La Ruta de los Conquistadores. It's a great race. And, uh, and afterwards, we went to surfing camp, right? We went to this little surfing town where Tom Brady and Giselle have a house. Okay. And so uh, in, the, in the town is this 25-foot waterfall with a cliff and like a 20-foot deep pool underneath it. And I've got video in one of my documentaries of me and Shannon, my daughter, jumping off, you know, the 25-foot thing. And, and I'm talking about how, you know, it's important to make kids because she's screaming the whole way down. A month ago, Tom Brady put on his Instagram post at the exact same 
location with almost the exact same camera angle, he and his daughter are jumping off. And he got so much hell. Even The Rock said, hey, Tom, you better, you know, take better care of your kids or something like that. And I'm thinking, they, people are so messed up, right, that, that, that we're trying to protect our kids. And just because the kids think it's scary doesn't mean we should be listening to our kids. We're the ones who are supposed to be getting them out of their comfort zone. Yeah, we're the parents, and we're not their best friend, and, and you know, we're not there to be their, their guardian angels. We're, right. we're there to, to let them know that they've got to con- take control of their whole life. So. Yeah, I love that. I've got three daughters. My oldest is 15, 10, and 8, right? And they love to play, and I encourage that. I mean, they're, they're, they're as rough as boys. But, but the way I'm looking around to society, like, they're going to have to wear the pants. I mean, really. The, the, the young men I see around, they're buried in their phones or playing video games. You know, this, this uh, Fortnite thing is nuts. Uh, I've got, so I have five boys in my, I'm the oldest of five boys. We're all very healthy. Myself and my brother right under me, I'm 36, he's 35. We served combat missions. There is a stark difference between us and then the three younger ones who have not experienced anywhere where they had to go away and live on their own. And it's a, there's a very clear distinction between that. And so now I'm looking around, I'm like, well, look, if the young men, if the parents aren't going to educate the young men well enough for them to be suitable, <laughs> I mean, that's the protective dad, but still, the, I mean, I, I talk to my kids, my 15-year-old at the time, I'm like, you know, I'm just being a dad, but I'm like, you better not ever date anybody that doesn't know how to change a tire. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah, or strip down a, a you know a, a weapon in under thirty seconds. Yeah, or fill dress an elk or something like that. I mean, it's true. You know, um, I you, when we were living in Virginia um, on on our farm, I lived on a horse farm in Virginia, and and as most people know, deer are way overpopulated. But it's it's great meat because it's you know it's organic and and they're out eating the grass and everything else. So I'd I'd kill four or five deer a year. And Virginia has this great program called the Hunters for the Hungry. Okay. So, you know, oh, we'd, awesome. we'd, keep two deer, we'd keep two deer for ourselves, and then everything else you bring to the local butcher, and they gave them to homeless families and wow. everything else. So it's yeah. a great program, cool. yeah, and the idea is to help, uh, help, you know, get down this overpopulation, which is, you know, the guy down the road from us got killed on his motorcycle by hitting a deer, and it's, yeah. it's a huge issue. But, so it's, it's, yeah, and, but, and, and so, you know, I, I think my boys were, um, and, and my daughter went up, my, my daughter's 16 now as well, and uh, all three of them have gone out hunting with me, and all three of them have had to either watch or help me, you know, field dress a, a deer. Yeah. And, and I don't want my kids, you know, we don't eat really red meat, um, but I don't want my kids going to a store thinking that, that food from an animal comes wrapped up in plastic. I want them to understand, you know, where this thing's coming from, and the whole process, and the circle of life, and, and, and all that. And see, like, er, people are just like, oh my God, I can't believe, you know, you take your kids hunting. Like, of course I take my kids hunting right like I want them to be hunting I want them to learn this stuff and and it's yeah it's so the other thing is flying right since I got a pilot's license you can start your kids taking pilot's lessons at 14 he can get a license uh, you know my son wants to fly wants to be an astronaut he can get a a pilot's license before he can get a a driver's license yeah and and you know at 16 he's got to be 16 and a half to get the uh, driver's license yeah I have a cousin. They're they uh, they're ranchers. They do grass-fed, uh, raised and finished up on this mountain by our home. And I went out riding with them. I, I moved to Phoenix for about 11 years, so I got you know being buried in the city was really hard to do the things I enjoy doing. So now that we're back home in southern Utah, 
we're every weekend we're gone. We're out in the mountains, out in the trees. Girls are getting dirty, having fun. So one day I went out with my uncle, uh, my cousin, and he, he took four of his boys, and his youngest was six. And they all had their own horse. You know, six-year-old watching this six-year-old climb up on this full-size horse all by himself. And uh, thoroughbred or something, yeah. I'm just videoing it, watching him, just trying to like, and he's just figuring it out. And Dad's just watching him, letting him figure it out. Uh, it's been so long for me. I'm like, geez, I'm wiped out. And on, when we were getting up to the truck. One of his little kids is like, that was a good day. We were done in eight hours instead of 12. And I'm just like, geez. I, I, and I told him, I'm like, you guys, listen. And they're so disconnected from social media because that's their life is ranting. And they are so disconnected that they don't, they've not even heard this whole toxic masculinity conversation. I, I, I envy that they don't even know that's a thing. And I'm just like, I want to acknowledge you boys. You are a rare breed. You're the last of the men. Really, we're looking at last of the men. There's only going to be a few families that hold that tradition, that, that make sure it's an important part of how they're raised. And we wonder why shootings are happening and, you know, suicides. It's sure a logical outcome for, for boys who, you know, shootings and, and you know, there's, there's evidence around the fact that, that porn and, and shooting are tied together as, as boys don't have the skills to interact with girls. So, you know, they, they, they have hormonal needs, right? There's no, that's just biology, right? So, so they go to porn, right? And then they end up treating women with, with like a porn star, you know, like, like yeah. a, an object. Yeah. And so the women reject them. So then they're getting rejected and they're saying, okay, well, I'll show them. I'm going to go, I'm going to yeah. go shoot out this school yeah. because they've never learned, they've never learned one, how to love and be caring and, and, and tender and, and those sort of things. They've never learned how to be assertive, you know, with other boys and, and the difference between assertiveness and aggressiveness. There's so much they lose out by not having these coming of age uh, situations or by not having parents who are willing to say no and set boundaries. Pa parents have to learn That's how to say that. no. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they have to say, look, well, you know, I have people, I speak three or four times a, a month. Uh -huh. I've got people who say, well, how do I get my kids uh, off their cell phone? They're on it all the time. Fucking take it away. You're the parent. Take it away. <laughs> exactly. Who's paying the bill? Is yeah. your 11-year-old paying yeah. the bill for that cell phone? Yeah. And, and, and it's so... Now, to be fair, I'm, I'm being a little hard on some parents sure. because they're afraid, right? right. They, they're, uh, a lot of parents are afraid to do what they know what's right because they're going to be, be told by other parents and by, by school officials that they're bad parents. Right. Like I, I had a buddy in Marin County, one of the richest counties uh, in the country in, in San Francisco, mm -hmm. had uh, a couple of his, his uh, nieces come stay with him from Finland and they wanted to walk to school a half mile away. And, and he got, the school called him up and said, they can't walk to school. And they said, why not? And he said, well, it's illegal. It's dangerous. They're living in a, you know, the average house is a million dollars or something. They're living in this beautiful community, and they're forbidden from walking to school. And he said, I, I, you know, they're walking to school. Or someone come get them because I'm not driving them to school. And, uh, and, and it's that kind of thinking that drives parents to say, you know, well, if I took my kid climbing that rope, they took the rope out of the gym because, you know, they, they didn't want it to be uh, someone to get hurt by it, uh, God forbid. So if I take them rope climbing, what are the other parents going to think of me? Yeah. So they have fears and they're making, they're making those, their own decisions based on fear and that's, that's reflecting on their kids, you know, and, and it's really hurting their kids. Yeah, it's too bad. Um, 
Right. I didn't. I didn't even think AJ would go down this par <laughs> this parenting thing. But yeah. oh hell yeah, you got you know you you you, you picked a bone there. My my, my you know so couple years ago I had a show it was a head-to-head -head weight class competition for CrossFit we were we got to the point we were broadcasting to a quarter of a million people live I had 900 people in house buying tickets and we got to the point where we just couldn't raise money to take it to a, another level with production right but and I and I had a gym I was running at the same time and my family took the back seat I was just I thought I was doing this for them and I was never home and so uh, in November last year I went bankrupt from from experiments and stuff with Learning my first businesses, yeah. yeah really, it was the head-to-head -head competition that took everything else out. I didn't know that an LLC is a liquidatable asset if you get sued personally. <laughs> Lesson learned. So, because they were two separate businesses. Anyhow, after that happened, and I got through the, the fear of where am I going to go next and all of this stuff, the, the, you know, just that, that phase, that dip, it became very clear to me that the priority was to keep my family in focus and then build around it, not build this and try to keep my family in it. And so I've spent as much time as I, I'm making up for, you know, seven years of running a gym and five years running that show. And so I'm, you know, extremely, I mean, I homeschooled my daughter the last two years because the grades weren't where they should be to be in school and the social influence. And I said, what's the point? If they're not passing grades, why be in this influential environment where no other parent seems to care what their kids are doing? I talked to my brother who's 21, so he's only been out of high school a couple years, and I asked him about pornography. And I said, what is porn like for you guys? Because I remember when I was in high school, it was hard to come by. You know? And he goes, well, it's just normal. Everybody is part of it. I mean, now that's a broad statement, but it's so common that he's just like, yeah, that's just normal. And I'm just like, I feel so terrible because, you know, I went through a phase where that's something I struggled with and had to get over, being military, being gone for, you know, all of these excuses, but it set unrealistic expectations at home, uncommunicated expectations. So to think that my daughters are going to be going into a world looking for relationships that, that, like we talked about a minute ago, that that's what the perception is. So father, you know, earlier we were talking about environmental change and the only thing that freaks me out is watching my kids suffer if it gets bad enough for me if it was just me i don't i'm good i'll you know well so here's you, yeah. you know let's go let's bring this Please, back yeah. to fear for your listeners Absolutely. um you know i've got that same fear i've got a uh, a daughter and and she's the firstborn and she was there when i went through every you know all the the leukemia yeah. and everything else so i i tell my boys you know the boys are like how come shannon gets to go with you i was like boy she's my favorite just <laughs> just get over it right get yeah. <laughs> let's get that out of the way so uh you know she and i have have these really frank and direct talks all yeah. the time and and um, and same with the boys. And, and, you know, I talk to the boys. My, my youngest is, is uh, you know, 13, and he's a player, right? He, 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 uh -huh. You know, he likes having pretty girlfriends, yeah. and he likes yeah. to go out. And my middle child is just, you know, he's terribly shy, and he's uh -huh. kind of a mama's boy. And, you know, every time I ask him about a girlfriend, he turns beet red. <laughs> so, so he's really cute. But, I, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to the boys, and I try to do my best with knowing what situations they're going to have to face, whether it's the climate, whether it's, um, you know, finding the right guy, even if it takes, you know, meeting and, and dating a million guys and, and understanding, you know, what's important and, and what makes a, a good, healthy family. 
and all that stuff, at the end of the day, AJ, I can only control what I tell them. Right. So I can't control the environment any more than the fact that I don't use plastic and I stopped eating red meat um, and, and all these, you know, the things that I do. That's all I can control. So you can't control the glacier that's going to slide. You know, you can't control what's going to happen with your daughters and you can't control the world they're going to live in other than make them the stars. So your, your daughters are going to be should come next summer to Vermont with my kids and Joe DeSena's kids because there's a kid's death race. So Joe holds a death really? race every okay. year. And, and this year we did a kid's death race and we had you know 20 or 30 kids and I spent uh, an hour with them beforehand talking about fear and explaining stuff. And then they went out and, and they literally were pulling a chain up a mountain as a team, uh, you know, bringing it halfway down, then, you know, getting, getting in the ice cold water and all this stuff. And, and you know, my wife and, and Joe's wife, Courtney, my wife, Kristen, they're like, no, you, you know, someone better be, you know, taking care. And we're like, listen, no mom's allowed. <laughs> so it was, it, that was one of the classic statements from awesome. thing, no mom's no allowed. Mom and, uh, and they came back, like my kids came back and I'm thinking, you know, they're going to go to fall right to sleep because they start at like 8 in the morning and they finished at, at 5 or 6 at night. And the real death race was going on, which is like a four-day yeah, nonstop, time. no sleep. And so that's why we're all up there. And, and my kids and DeSena's kids came back and, and they start playing in the pool. And I, I, said, I said, how was that, guys? You know, and these other kids are like laying around like dead fish. And uh, I said, how was it? And they said, yeah, it was kind of fun. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gosh. like, are you are you guys beat? And they're like, no, it wasn't that tough. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Dude, that's awesome. That's and so, for how they're being raised. Well, not only that, but you know what? Those kids are the ones who are going to be running the world. That's right. Right? Our, our kids who have confidence in themselves. My daughter now at 16 flies transatlantic by herself without without batting an eyelash. You know, wow. she's got that's great amazing. situational awareness. Yep. Um, she's She's got no problem being assertive and confident and saying hey look you know i want to i want to change seats i want this or whatever and and it's all you know because we're doing the best we can but then we have to let it go if we can't if we can't control what happens to them you know once we know we've done our best then you know we just pray that that you know they're going to do something that changes the environment awesome i was uh i was prepping a presentation for a conference and my my mom and my daughter were there so i'm like I need you guys to be my audience. Give me some feedback, right? And, and so it was my oldest, 15. And so I went through my presentation. She's sitting there with this, like, glowing face mask on just watching me while because, like, late at night. And uh, so I got done, and I asked my mom what's her, her opinion, and she gave it to me. And then I asked my daughter, and I'm somewhat, like, hesitant, like, what's it going to come across as? And she goes, it was good. And I'm like, okay, so what did you think about it? She goes, it's like how you always, and I'm like waiting for the like the lecture word. And I'm like waiting, and she goes, it's like, I don't know how to say it, but it's like how you, like you're always teaching us. And I'm like, yes, like, you know, that's the first time I'd had her acknowledge my, because I do the same with them, constant conversations. You know, this is, I'm a coach in the mental emotional world. I help, primarily help people lose weight. Weight's a byproduct of, their mind working right and being who they are about themselves. I mean, you and I have both gone through that and that's where we are now. But uh, so I'm always constantly trying to share that with her because you're right. At the end of the day, it will, it is her life. And, and it, it, as tough as it is, it is a constant reminder for me to tell myself it's their life. It's their life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, do you have any sort of like 
a routine that you would advise my listeners to help with this concept of fear and how to get through that? Um, so AJ, I don't, I, you know, I, I've got a platform in the book and, and it's also on Spartan. They're launching a new educational um, platform and I've got 14 episodes up there on the platform. Okay. So uh, that's the kind of thing, if you really want to do the deep dive yep. into it and really unpack it and, and live this courageous life, yep. the book, uh, Fear is Fuel, you can pre-order it now on Amazon or okay, Barnes & Noble. Um, the, and it excuse come me, out? comes out in January. January the uh, online course from Spartan is, um, is another good one. But the, you, you know, it, it, it takes a while to unpack, but there's some great uh, neuroscience techniques mm-hmm. that can help people make that choice between fear or courage and flip that switch and and anyone can do it if if I sit here and, and now I've done a bunch of world firsts you know the first to ride a, a mountain bike up to the top of Elbrus first to uh, do you know Everest Base Camp officially and then Elbrus and then Kilimanjaro by, by mountain bike and so uh, uh, last year I won the race across America which is called the toughest bike race in the world as part of a four person team from San Diego to Annapolis Maryland so all this crazy stuff stuff and I've, I've done it just to see how far I could push myself yeah. just because I want to keep going yeah. and and so anyone can do it if I can do this stuff as the as the terrified blue-collar kid who came from nothing anyone can do it and awesome. and it's all a choice that they make and there's some platform in there I will leave you with something quick AJ that I um, that I always advise people I have a morning routine okay. nearly every successful, happy, fulfilled person. We've been surrounded here this weekend by incredible people, right? I've got two or three of my friends who are here, uh, not just Joe DeSena, but Mark Devine, who's a commander in the Navy SEALs, started SEAL Fit, and he's an uh, unbeatable mind, and he's got another book coming out. Um, Mark Patterson, who's a pro N- uh, NFL uh, football player, who's now climbing the seven summits. Um, all, all these amazing people here, nearly every one of them does the same thing I do and that's have a morning routine. So when, when I wake up first thing in the morning, I generally do five things. I don't necessarily get to all five, um, but I'd highly recommend your listeners set up a morning routine. And the first three, I think, you, you can do in, in 10 minutes. Okay. And, and it just sets you up for a tremendously successful day okay. if you do this. Number one, do what Marcus Aurelius said. And he said, if you wake up alive, he said, thank, you know, be thankful for your family, for people you love, for a roof over your head, for all the, all the little things that you have. Just have some gratitude. Just wake up and say, thank you. And, and, and that's a 30-second that's a practice. That's, that's number one. Number two, I do a series of breathing exercises. So, so I'll do um, something called Tumo breathing and something from Kundalini Yoga. But basically I'm taking uh, five to 10 minutes of really deep breaths. And, and in the first cycle, I'll do 20 deep breaths, as deep as I can take, let it all out, and then hold it out for a long time. Then I start breathing just through my nose as quickly as I can and count 100 breaths doing that. Then I go back to the really deep breaths and, and do it for 30 and then take in as much as deep a breath as I can and hold it as long as I can. And I usually time that. And what that does is that, that triggers the, the uh, pineal gland and the blood-brain barrier and it, it starts to oxygenate the brain as well. And we start to, we start to get, home, get a hold of this deep core of our brain and the brainstem that we usually don't trigger. So the breathing exercise does a tremendous amount for that. And I went from, you know, when I first started it, I could hold my breath for 
you know, maybe a minute and a half, maybe maybe two minutes on the outset. And now, uh, if I don't get four minutes, I'll do it again to make sure I do. And I've done it as long as five minutes and 20 seconds. So, and it's just, just from doing this practice. Then you learn to settle down your, your heart and everything else. And, and the effects are incredible. The third thing I do is uh, some quick calisthenics. So just, uh, I, I bought a bicycle book, you know, when I was 14 years old by this famous Italian coach. And he always had his riders wake up, do head rolls, do like 10 head rolls, 10 shoulder rolls in both directions, 10 arm swings in both directions, uh, 10 toe touches. And then I usually throw in jumping jacks in there as well, just to get the blood flowing. Again, five minutes max. The third thing I do, or sorry, the fourth thing I do now is overnight, all your memories consolidate in your brain through rapid eye movement sleep. And all those synapses and neurons that fire together to create those memories get repaired. So your brain is at its most productive and most open state to learning. So I'll oftentimes do a French lesson because uh, I, I speak French and I want to speak it like a native. And, uh, or when I was working on my book, I'd do the most creative stuff I was trying to do. Or you know, um, any time you really want to learn something or you want to create something, that moment when you first wake up, get the blood flowing a little bit is, is critical. So those are sort of the first four things. The fifth thing depends on what I do for workout. So if I end up having a workout in the morning, then I'll wait till I come home. Uh, but if I don't, I usually jump right in and take a cold shower. And, and a cold shower is an easy way for a lot of people to scare themselves. Because every time I go do a keynote speech, I do them two or three times a month, uh-huh. you know, people ask about my morning routine. Yeah. I said, it's always cold shower. Because there's great scientific data that 30% uh, the, the people who take cold showers have 30% stronger immune system, and, and it's irrefutable. For men, it increases testosterone. It helps create uh, more glutathione, one of the antioxidants that's really difficult to, to replicate. So it has a ton of benefits, and people are like, oh, no, 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 I couldn't do that. And it's just fear. You can stand in a cold shower for five minutes. You're not going to die. But people are just, you, you'd think I was asking to jump out of a plane. Um, so it's a good way to scare yourself, That's but even awesome. even just a 30-second uh, 30 or a minute at the end of your regular shower can, can have benefit as well. So I'd highly suggest your listeners come up with their own morning routine, and the worst thing they can do, the absolute worst thing they can do is pick up their phone when they wake up in the morning. Because as soon as they do, their, their neurons and their brain starts to trigger into a reactive state. So they have to react to information that other people sent them. And it doesn't matter what the information is. It could be that the, the Patriots just drafted a new player, and then they're saying, oh, there goes my fantasy football league. You know, I'm, I'm losing this. Or it might be that you know, a boss said, you know, that presentation sucked. You've got to do it again. And now they're, they're immediately fixated on that. So don't touch that, don't touch that phone for at least the first half hour when you're up. You, you know, even if your morning routine is just getting a cup of coffee and, and you know, walking out on your front porch and, and looking at the, you know, looking at the sunshine or the rain or whatever, leave that phone alone until you've had a chance to think your own thoughts. That's great. I added that routine recently in the last month and it's made a massive difference. I don't touch it till eight. Wife goes out the door, kids go out the door, then I go to work. And, and so you're in control of your life now, right? You're not letting other people control your life or and influence. I totally feel that from just implementing that thing. I have my routine, but that adding that to it was just a huge impact on my day. Absolutely. And, and back to that parenting thing, our kids, you know, I, I make them leave their phones in the kitchen, you know, when they go off to bed, and they don't touch it until after breakfast. 
Oh, great. Right? So they're they're not, you know, and they'll bitch, well, I got to check my schedule. You know, I'm not sure what could. No, no, yeah. no. Oh, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. Sorry, girls. Yeah. <laughs> um, so where's the best place for my listeners to follow you? Like, what's the best way for them to stay in contact or listen to what you have going on? So the website, pjsweeney.com. Um, all the stuff's on there. Instagram is the fear guru. Uh, Twitter is at PJ Sweeney, and then LinkedIn is Patrick Sweeney. Great. Patrick, thank you so much. AJ, it was awesome. Great. Thank you. Good job.